0: section five of beacon lights of history volume eight great rulers by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand henry of navarre part one a d 1553 to 1610 the huguenots in this lecture i shall confine myself principally to the connection of henry the fourth with that memorable movement which came near making france a protestant country he is identified with the huguenots and it is the struggles of the huguenots which i wish chiefly to present i know he was also a great king in the first of the bourbon dynasty whose heroism in war was equalled only by his enlightened zeal in the civilization of france a king who more deeply impressed himself upon the affections of the nation than any monarch since saint louis and who had he lived to execute his schemes would have raised france to the highest pitch of glory nor do i forget that although he fought for a great cause and reigned with great wisdom and ability and thus rendered important services to his country he was a man of great defects of character stained with those peculiar vices which disgraced most of the bourbon kings especially louis the fourteenth and louis the fifteenth that his court was the scene of female gallantries and intrigues and that he was more under the influence of women than was good for the welfare of his country or his own reputation but the limits of this lecture will not permit me to dwell on his acts as a monarch or on his statesmanship his services or his personal defects of character I am obliged, from the magnitude of my subject, and from the necessity of giving it unity and interest, to confine myself to him as a leader of the Huguenots alone. It is not Henry himself that I would consider, so much as the struggles of the brave men associated with him, more or less intimately, in their attempt to secure religious liberty in the sixteenth century. THE SIXTEENTH CENTURY what a great era that was in comparison with the preceding centuries since christianity was declared from a religious and heroic point of view it was immeasurably a greater period than the nineteenth century which has been marked chiefly for the triumphs of science material progress and social and political reforms but in earnestness in moral grandeur and in discussions which pertain to the health and life of nations the sixteenth century was greater than our own then began all sorts of inquiries about nature and about mind and about revelation and providence about liberty of worship and freedom of thought all of which were discussed with an enthusiasm and patience and boldness and originality to which our own times furnish no parallel and united with this fresh and original agitation of great ideas was a heroism in action which no age of the world has equaled Men risked their fortunes and their lives in defense of those principles which have made the enjoyment of them in our times the greatest blessing we possess. It was a new spirit that had arisen in our world to break the fetters which centuries of fraud and superstition and injustice had forged. A spirit scornful of old authorities, yet not skeptical, with disgust of the past and hope for the future penetrating even the hamlets of the poor and kindling the enthusiasm of princes and nobles producing learned men in every country of europe whose original investigations should put to the blush the commentators and compilers of this age of religious mediocrity and disguised infidelity such intellectual giants in the field of religious inquiry had not appeared since the fathers of the church combated the paganism of the roman world and will not probably appear again until the cycle of changes is completed in the domain of theological thought, and men are forced to meet the enemies of divine revelation marshaled in such overwhelming array that there will be a necessity for reformers, called out by a special providence, to fight battles, as I regard Luther and Calvin and Knox. The great difference between the sixteenth and nineteenth centuries outside of material aspects is that the former recognized the majesty of god and the latter the majesty of men both centuries believed in progress but the sixteenth century traced this progress to first and the nineteenth to second causes the sixteenth believed that human improvement was owing directly to special divine grace and the nineteenth believes in the necessary development of mankind the school of the sixteenth century was spiritual that of the nineteenth is material the former looked to heaven the latter looks to earth the sixteenth regarded this world as a mere preparation for the next and the nineteenth looks upon this world as the future scene of indefinite and completed bliss the sixteenth century attacked the ancient the nineteenth attacks the eternal the sixteenth destroyed but reconstructed The nineteenth also destroys, but would substitute nothing instead. The sixteenth reminds us of audacious youth still clinging to parental authority. The nineteenth reminds us of cynical and irreverent old age, believing in nothing but the triumphs of science and art, and shaking off the doctrines of the ages as exploded superstitions. The sixteenth century was marked not only by intensely earnest religious inquiries, but by great civil and social disorders showing a transition period of society from the slaveries and discomforts of the feudal ages to the liberty and comforts of the highly civilized life. In the midst of religious enthusiasm we see tumults, insurrections, terrible animosities, and cruel intolerance. War was associated with inhuman atrocities, and the acceptance of the Reformed faith was followed by bitter and heartless persecution. The feudal system had received a shock from standing armies and the invention of gunpowder and the central authority of kings, but it was not demolished. The nobles still continued to enjoy their social and political distinctions, the peasantry were ground down by unequal laws, and the nobles were as arrogant and quarrelsome as the people were oppressed by unjust distinctions. They were still followed by their armed retainers, and had almost unlimited jurisdiction in their respective governments. Even the higher clergy gloried in feudal inequalities and were selected from the noble classes. The people were not powerful enough to make combinations and extort their rights unless they followed the standards of military chieftains, arrayed perhaps against the crown and against the parliaments. We see no popular, independent political movements—even the people, like all classes above them, were firm and enthusiastic in their religious convictions. The commanding intellect at that time in Europe was John Calvin, a Frenchman but a citizen of Geneva, whom we have already seen to be a man of marvelous precocity of genius and astonishing logical powers, combined with the most exhaustive erudition on all theological subjects. His admirers claim a distinct and logical connection between his theology and civil liberty itself. I confess I cannot see this. There was nothing democratic about Calvin he ruled indeed at geneva as savonarola did in florence but he did not have as liberal ideas as the florentine reformer about the political liberties of the people he made his faith the dearest thing a man could have to be defended unto death in the face of the most unrelenting persecution it was the tenacity to defend the reformed doctrines of which next to luther calvin was the greatest champion which kindled opposition to civil rulers AND IT WAS OPPOSITION TO CIVIL RULERS WHO PROVED TO THEMSELVES TYRANTS WHICH LED TO THE STRUGGLE FOR CIVIL LIBERTY, NOT DEMOCRATIC IDEAS OF RIGHT. THESE MAY HAVE BEEN THE SEQUENCE OF AGITATIONS AND WARS, BUT NOT THEIR ANIMATING CAUSE, LIKE THE IDEAS OF Rousseau ON THE FRENCH REVOLUTIONISTS. THE ORIGINAL PURITANS WERE NOT DEMOCRATIC, THE Presbyterians OF SCOTLAND WERE NOT, EVEN WHEN CROMWELL LED THE ARMIES, BUT NOT THE PEOPLE OF ENGLAND the huguenots had no aspirations for civil rights they only aspired for the right of worshiping god according to the dictates of conscience there was nothing popular in their notions of government when henry the fourth headed the forces of the huguenots he only aimed at the recognition of religious rights the huguenots never rallied around popular leaders but rather under the standards of princes and nobles fighting for the right of worshiping god according to the dictation or ideas of calvin they would preserve their schools their churches their consistories and their synods they would be unmolested in their religious worship now at the time when henry the fourth was born in the year fifteen fifty three when henry the second was king of france and edward the sixth was king of england the ideas of the reformation and especially the doctrines of calvin had taken a deep and wide hold of the french people the calvinists as they were called were a powerful party in some parts of france they were in a majority more than a third of the whole population had enthusiastically accepted the reformed doctrines they were in a fair way toward triumph they had great leaders amongst the highest of the nobility but they were bitterly hated by the king and the princes of the house of valois and especially by the duke of guise and the cardinal of lorraine the most powerful families in france because they meditated to overturn not the throne but the old established religion the pope instigated the most violent proceedings so did the king of spain it was resolved to suppress the hated doctrines the enemies of the calvinists resorted to intrigues and assassinations they began a furious persecution as they held in their hands the chief political power injustice succeeded injustice and outrage followed outrage during the whole reigns of the valois princes treachery assassinations and bloody executions marked the history of france royal edicts forbid even the private assemblies of the huguenots on pain of death they were not merely persecuted but calumniated there was no crime which was not imputed to them even that of sacrificing little children so that the passions of the people were aroused against them and they were so maltreated that all security was at an end from a condition of hopeful progress they were forced back and beaten down their condition became insupportable there was no alternative but desperate resistance or martyrdom for the complete suppression of protestantism was resolved upon on the part of the government the higher clergy the parliaments the university of paris and the greater part of the old nobility supported the court and each successive prince of the house of valois adopted more rigorous measures than his predecessor henry the second was more severe than francis i and francis the second was more implacable than henry the second who was killed at a tournament in fifteen fifty nine francis the second a feeble prince was completely ruled by his mother catherine de medici an incarnated fiend of cruelty and treachery though a woman of pleasing manners and graceful accomplishments like mary of scotland but without her levities under her influence persecution assumed a form which was truly diabolical the huguenots although supported by the king of navarre the prince of conde coligny admiral of france his brother the seigneur de the count of montgomery the duke of bouillon the duke of saubuis all of whom were nobles of high rank were in danger of being absolutely crushed and were on the brink of despair what if a third part of the people belonged to their rank when the whole power of the crown and a great majority of the nobles were against them and these supported by the pope and clergy and stimulated to ferocity by the jesuits then becoming formidable at last the huguenots resolved to organize an arm in their own defense for there is a time when submission ceases to be a virtue if ever a people had cause for resistance it was this persecuted people They did not rise up against their persecutors with the hope of overturning the throne, or producing a change of dynasties, or gaining constitutional liberty, or becoming a political power hostile to the crown, like the Puritans under Cromwell or Hampton, but simply to preserve what to them was more precious than life. All that they demanded was a toleration of their religion, and as their religion was dearer to them than life, they were ready to undergo any sacrifices. Their resistance was more formidable than was anticipated they got possession of cities and fortresses and were able to defy the whole power of the crown it was found impossible to suppress a people who fought with so much heroism and who defied every combination so truces and treaties were made with them by which their religious rights were guaranteed but these treaties were perpetually broken, for treachery is no sin with religious persecutors, since the end justified the means. This Huguenotic contest, attended with so much vicissitude, alternate defeat and victory, and stained by horrid atrocities, was at its height when Henry the Fourth was a boy and had no thought of ever being king of France. His father, Antoine de Bourbon although king of navarre and a prince of the blood being a lineal descendant from saint louis was really only a great noble not so powerful as the duke of guise or the duke of montmorency and even he a leader of the rebellion was finally won over to the court party by the seductions brought to bear on him by roman priests he was either bribed or intimidated and disgracefully abjured the cause for which he at first gallantly fought he died from a wound he received at the siege of rouen while commanding one of the armies of charles the ninth who succeeded his brother francis the second in fifteen sixty the mother of the young prince destined afterwards to be so famous was one of the most celebrated women of history jeanne de niece of francis l a woman who was equally extolled by men of letters and calvinistic divines she was beautiful as she was good At her castle in Pau, the capital of her hereditary kingdom of Navarre, she diffused a magnificent hospitality, especially to scholars and the lights of the reformed doctrines. Her kingdom was small and was politically unimportant, but she was a sovereign princess, nevertheless. The management of the young prince, her son, was most admirable but unusual. He was delicate and sickly as an infant, and reared with difficulty. But though a prince, he was fed on the simplest food and exposed to hardships like the sons of peasants. He was allowed to run bareheaded and barefooted, exposed to heat and rain, in order to strengthen his constitution. Amid the hills at the base of the Pyrenees, in the company of peasants' children, he thus acquired simple and natural manners, and accustomed himself to fatigues and dangers. He was educated in the Reformed doctrines, but was more distinguished as a boy for his chivalric graces, physical beauty, and manly sports, than for seriousness of character or a religious life. He grew up a Protestant from education rather than conviction. At twelve, in the year 1565, he was entrusted by his mother, the Queen of Navarre, to the care of his uncle, the Prince of Condé, and on his death, to Admiral Coligny the acknowledged leader of the protestants he thus witnessed many bloody battles before he was old enough to be entrusted with command at eighteen he was affianced to marguerite de valois sister of charles the ninth in spite of differences of religion it was amid the nuptial festivities of the young king of Navarre, his mother had died the year before when all the prominent leaders of the protestants were enticed to paris that preparations were made for the blackest crime in the annals of civilized nations even the treacherous and hideous massacre of saint bartholomew perpetrated by charles the ninth who was incited to it by his mother the ever infamous catherine de medici and the duke of guise the protestants under the prince of conde and admiral coligny had fought so bravely and so successfully in defence of their cause that all hope of subduing them in the field was given up the bloody battles of montcontour of saint denis of jarnac had proved how stubbornly the huguenots would fight while their possession of such strong fortresses as montauban and la rochelle deemed impregnable showed that they could not easily be subdued although the prince of conde had been slain at the battle of Jarnac, this great misfortune to the protestants was more than balanced by the assassination of the great duke of guise the ablest general and leader of the catholics so when all hope had vanished of exterminating the huguenots in open warfare a deceitful peace was made and their leaders were decoyed to paris in order to accomplish in one foul sweep by wholesale murder the diabolical design The huguenot leaders were completely deceived old admiral coligny with his deeper insight hesitated to put himself into the power of a bigoted and persecuting monarch but charles the ninth pledged his word for his safety and in an age when chivalry was not extinguished his promise was accepted who could believe that his word of honor would be broken or that he a king could commit such an outrageous and unprecedented crime but what oath what promise what law can bind a man who is a slave of religious bigotry when his church requires a bloody and a cruel act the end seemed to justify any means i would not fix the stain of that infamous crime exclusively on the jesuits or on the pope or on the counselors of the king or on his mother i will not say that it was even exclusively a church movement it may have been equally an apparent state necessity a Protestant prince might mount the throne of France, and with him, perhaps, the ascendancy of Protestantism, or at least its protection. Such a catastrophe as it seemed to the counsellors of Charles the Ninth must somehow be averted. How could it be averted otherwise than by the assassination of Henry himself and his cousin Conde, and the brave old admiral, as powerful as Guise, as courageous as Du Guesclin, and as pious as Godfrey and then when these leaders were removed and all the protestants in paris were murdered who would remain to continue the contest and what protestant prince could hope to mount to the throne but whoever was directly responsible for the crime and whatever may have been the motives for it still it was committed the first victim was coligny himself and the slaughter of sixty thousand persons followed in paris and the provinces the admiral coligny marquis of chatillon was one of the finest characters in all history brave honest truthful sincere with deep religious convictions and great ability as a general no englishman in the sixteenth century can be compared with him for influence heroism and virtue combined it was deemed necessary to remove this illustrious man not because he was personally obnoxious but because he was the leader of the protestant party it is said that as the fatal hour approached to give the signal for the meditated massacre august twenty fourth fifteen seventy two the king appeared irresolute and disheartened though cruel perfidious and weak he shrank from committing such a gigantic crime and this too in the face of his royal promises but there was one person whom no dangers appalled and whose icy soul could be moved by no compassion and no voice of conscience At midnight catherine entered the chamber of her irresolute son in the louvre on whose brow horror was already stamped and whose frame quivered with troubled chills coloring the crime with the usual sophistries of all religious and political persecution that the end justifies the means and stigmatizing him as a coward she at last extorted from his quivering lips the fatal order and immediately the tocsin of death sounded from the great bell of the church of saint germain de oxeroy at once the slaughter commenced in every corner of paris so well were the horrid measures concerted screams of despair were mingled with shouts of vengeance the cries of the murdered were added to the imprecations of the murderers the streets flowed with blood the dead rained from the windows the seine became purple men women and children were seen flying in every direction pursued by soldiers who were told that an insurrection of protestants had broken out no sex or age or dignity was spared no retreat afforded a shelter not even the churches of the catholics neither alaric nor attila ever inflicted such barbarities no besieged city taken by assault ever saw such wanton butcheries except possibly jerusalem when taken by titus or Godfrey, or magdeburg when taken by tilly and as the bright summer sun illuminated the city on a Sunday morning, the massacre had but just begun. Nor for three days and three nights did the slaughter abate. A vulgar butcher appeared before the king, and boasted he had slain one hundred and fifty persons with his own hand in a single night. For seven days was Paris the scene of disgraceful murder and pillage and violence. Men might be seen stabbing little infants, and even children were known to slaughter their companions nor was there any escape from these atrocities the very altars which once had protected christians from pagans were polluted by catholic executioners ladies jested with unfeeling mirth over the dead bodies of murdered protestants the very worst horrors of which the mind could conceive were perpetrated in the name of religion and then when no more victims remained the king and his court and his clergy proceeded in solemn procession to the cathedral church of notre dame amidst hymns of praise, to return thanks to God for the deliverance of France from men who had sought only the privilege of worshipping him according to their consciences. Nor did the bloody work stop here. Orders were sent by the government to every city and town of France to execute the like barbarities. The utter extermination of the Protestants was resolved upon throughout the country. The slaughter was begun in treachery and was continued in the most heartless cruelty. When the news of it reached Bourne, the Holy Father, the Pope, caused a medal to be struck in commemoration of the event, illuminated his capital, ordained general rejoicings, as if for some signal victory over the Turks, and, assisted by his cardinals and clergy, marched in glad procession to St. Peter's Church, and offered up a solemn te deum for this vile and treacherous slaughter of sixty thousand Protestants. End of section 5